Section 81, Introduction. This is the last of four revelations given to Joseph Smith during March 1832. He received this revelation while residing at the home of Father Johnson in Hiram, Ohio. This revelation to Frederick G. Williams was apparently given to prepare him for his calling as a member of the First Presidency one year later. The First Presidency was first organized in March 18, 1833, and it was at that time that Frederick G. Williams was ordained to this high calling. At that time, he was told that his sins were forgiven, and this present revelation seems to anticipate some of the problems which would ensue. Verily, verily, I say unto you, my servant Frederick G. Williams, listen to the voice of him who speaketh, to the word of the Lord your God, and hearken to the calling wherewith you are called, even to be a high priest in my church, and a counselor unto my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., here Frederick G. Williams is notified of the Lord's intention to call him to a high priest and to ordain him as a counselor to Joseph Smith. When the First Presidency was finally organized with Frederick G. Williams as one counselor, Sidney Rigdon was ordained as the other counselor. However, as we shall see in the historical note at the end of this revelation, both Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon were mobbed and nearly killed a short time after this present revelation was given. No doubt this mobbing and the Lord's commandment that Joseph and Sidney go to Missouri contributed to the delay of a year before the First Presidency could be organized. Unto whom I have given the keys of the kingdom, which belong always unto the presidency of the high priesthood. Up to this time, the keys to the church and kingdom of the Lord were assumed to be vested in Joseph Smith alone. Now the Lord discloses that these keys will be shared by the three members of the First Presidency when it is organized. Had not other circumstances intervened, it is apparent from this verse that the organizing of the First Presidency was expected to take place in the near future. Therefore verily I acknowledge him, and will bless him, and also thee, inasmuch as thou art faithful in counsel, in the office which I have appointed unto you, in prayer always, vocally and in thy heart, in public and in private also in thy ministry in proclaiming the gospel in the land of the living and among thy brethren. The Lord says he acknowledges Joseph Smith and will bless Joseph and also Frederick G. Williams as his counselor so long as he is faithful and prayerful in carrying out his duties. And in doing these things thou wilt do the greatest good unto thy fellow beings and wilt promote the glory of him who is your Lord. His assignment will be to do the greatest good for the greatest number of people and promote the work and glory of the Savior. Wherefore, be faithful. Stand in the office which I have appointed unto you. Succor the weak. Lift up the hands which hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. As a future member of the First Presidency, Frederick is especially admonished to use his good offices to rescue and strengthen the weak, as well as those who are discouraged and faltering in the kingdom. And if thou art faithful unto the end, thou shalt have a crown of immortality, 
and eternal life in the mansions which I have prepared in the house of my Father. Now the Lord closes by emphasizing the need to be faithful to the end. One of the most amazing aspects of the early church history is the shocking number of great leaders of the kingdom who failed to make it to the end of their ministry. Frederick G. Williams would serve brilliantly until after the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. Then he would go to Missouri and come under the adverse influence of certain men with the result that he would be rejected as a member of the First Presidency. This would take place at a conference in far west Missouri. Still later, he was excommunicated at Quincy, Illinois, March 17, 1839. Nevertheless, he did seek forgiveness and was rebaptized into the church in April 1840. Brother Williams died as a faithful member of the church at Quincy, Illinois, October the 10th, 1842. Behold, and lo, these are the words of Alpha and Omega, even Jesus Christ. Amen. This revelation closes by reminding Frederick G. Williams that these are the words of his Savior and must be regarded earnestly. Now a historic note. On the 25th of March, a mob of 40 to 50 men violently assaulted both Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon. Joseph was dragged from the Johnson home, and Sidney Rigdon was dragged by the heels from another nearby house where he was staying. As Sidney was dragged from his house, his head was struck repeatedly until he was thought to have become unconscious. This raising up of a mob was primarily caused by a series of letters published by an apostate named Ezra Booth. He had developed a violent hatred toward Joseph Smith, and Booth's false allegations in his letters caused this feverish hatred to spread. At first, the mob had intended to kill Joseph, but it was then decided to tar and feather him instead. The mob did this, but only after lacerating his naked body by clawing at his skin. At one point, they tried to tar up his mouth, and at another time, they tried to force a vial of poison into his mouth, but it broke on his teeth. Joseph writes, quote, All my clothes were torn off me except my shirt collar, and one man fell on me and scratched my body with his nails like a mad cat. G.D. ye, that's the way the Holy Ghost falls on folks. Then Joseph continues, They then left me, and I attempted to rise, but fell back again. I pulled the tar away from my lips so I could breathe more freely, and after a while I began to recover. When I came to the door, I was naked, and the tar made me look as if I were covered with blood. And when my wife saw me, she thought I was all crushed to pieces and fainted. I called for a blanket. They brought me one and shut the door. I wrapped it around me and went in, unquote. Joseph concludes, quote, My friends spent the night in scraping and removing the tar and washing and cleansing my body so that by morning I was ready to be clothed again. This being the Sabbath morning, the people assembled for meeting at the usual hour of worship, and among them came also the mobsters, that is, Simon's rider, a Campbellite preacher, and leader of the mob, one McClintic, who had his hands in my hair, one Streeter, son of a Campbellite minister, and Fetish Allen, 
Esquire, who gave the mob a barrel of whiskey to raise their spirits. I preached to the congregation as usual, and in the afternoon of the same day baptized three individuals. The next morning I went to see Elder Rignan and found him crazy and his head highly inflamed, for they had dragged him by his heels that he could not raise his head from the rough frozen surface, which had lacerated it exceedingly. And when he saw me, he called to his wife to bring him his razor. She asked him what he wanted of it, and he replied, to kill me. Sister Rigdon left the room, and he asked me to bring his razor. I asked him what he wanted for it, and he replied he wanted to kill his wife, and he continued delirious some days. During the mobbing, one of the adopted Murdoch twins contracted a severe cold, continued to grow worse until Friday, and then died. Unquote. This is all in the History of the Church, Volume 1, pages 264 to 265. All of this delayed Joseph's departure for Missouri, as the Lord had commanded a short time earlier in section 78, verses 9 and 10. He did not get started for Missouri until April the 1st, 1832. Section 82, Introduction Mabocracy was so widespread around Curtin that Joseph left his wife and the remaining twin was the Whitney family for safekeeping. The mob, however, picked up word that Joseph had departed for Missouri with Newell K. Whitney, Peter Whitmer, and Jesse Gauze. They traced them all the way to Louisville, seeking an opportunity to attack them. Meanwhile, Sidney Rigdon and Titus Billings had joined the prophet, and all of them were finally welcomed by the joyous saints in Zion. On April the 26th, 1832, a general council of the church convened at Independence, and Joseph was acknowledged as the president of the high priesthood. It was during this conference that Joseph received section 82. Verily, verily, I say unto you, my servants, that inasmuch as you have forgiven one another your trespasses, even so I, the Lord, forgive you. During the conference, the antagonistic feelings between Sidney Rigdon and Bishop Edward Partridge were completely reconciled. This was not easily accomplished, but the Lord commended them for achieving it and said he would forgive these men their trespasses as they had forgiven one another. Nevertheless, there are those among you who have sinned exceedingly. Yea, even all of you have sinned, but verily I say unto you, Beware from henceforth, and refrain from sin, lest sore judgments fall upon your heads. The Lord then passes judgment on the entire congregation and says they have, quote, sinned exceedingly, unquote. The people are warned that unless they abhor these sins and refrain from repeating them, harsh judgment will fall upon them. For of him unto whom much is given, much is required. And he who sins against the greater light shall receive the greater condemnation. No people had been showered with so much light and knowledge as the saints in Kirtland and Zion. Therefore the Lord expects more from them than ordinary people who have received less light and understanding of the gospel. Ye call upon my name for revelations, and I give them unto you. And inasmuch as ye keep not my sayings which I give unto you, ye become transgressors. 
and justice and judgment are the penalty which is affixed unto my law. The people have been anxious to receive more revelations, and these have been poured out upon them. Nevertheless, when they ask for more gospel light and then transgress against this increased enlightenment, their offense against heaven are all the more ugly and the fixed penalties all the more egregious. Therefore, what I say unto one, I say unto all, Watch, for the adversary spreadeth his dominions, and darkness reigneth. The Lord comes right out and flatly asserts that the devil is expanding his dominion among them, and where he rules, darkness reigns. And the anger of God kindleth against the inhabitants of the earth, and none doeth good, for all have gone out of the way. The influence of Satan is so widespread throughout the earth that there is universal wickedness. The Lord cannot find any that are genuinely good. They have all gone astray and failed to recognize how the forces of evil have gained a grip on them. And now verily I say unto you, I, the Lord, will not lay any sin to your charge. Go your ways and sin no more. But unto that soul who sinneth shall the former sins return, saith the Lord your God. Now we come to a very special passage dealing with the principle of forgiveness of sins. The Lord says he's going to give this whole wicked congregation a fresh start so that he will not count their past sins against them. However, if they become indolent and careless, he will allow their old sins to return, and God will hold them accountable. In other words, what has previously been forgiven will loom up again as though they had never been forgiven. And again I say unto you, I give unto you a new commandment, that you may understand my will concerning you. Or in other words, I give unto you directions how you may act before me, that it may turn to you for your salvation. The Lord says he wants them to accept a new commandment and govern their lives accordingly. I, the Lord, am bound when ye do what I say. But when ye do not what I say, ye have no promise. The Lord shares with these wicked people a mandate from heaven. It is simply that when they obey his commandments, he is required by the fixed laws of eternity to fulfill his promises. And the converse law is also eternal, that when they do not obey his commandments, they have no promise. Therefore verily I say unto you, that it is expedient for my servants, Alam and Newell K. Whitney, Mahalalil and Sidney Rigdon, and my servant Joseph Smith, and Hora and Oliver Cowdery, and Shalamanasa and Martin Harris, to be bound together by a bond and covenant that cannot be broken by transgression, except judgment shall immediately follow in your several stewardships. The Lord wants his leaders to enter into an eternal covenant which cannot be broken, that they will completely fulfill the stewardships assigned to them. If they do not, the Lord says they can expect a terrible judgment to quickly fall upon them. To manage the affairs of the poor, and all things pertaining to the bishopric, both in the land of Zion and in the land of Kirtland. For I have consecrated the land of Kirtland in mine own due time for the benefit of the saints of the Most High, and for a stake to Zion. 
One of the severe sins of the saints is the failure of the people to live up to their stewardships and care for the indigent and poor. The Lord emphasizes that Zion is not the only sacred stake of Zion. Kirtland is also set apart by the Most High to be a sacred stake of Zion. For Zion must increase in beauty and in holiness. Her borders must be enlarged. Her stakes must be strengthened. Yea, verily I say unto you, Zion must arise and put on her beautiful garments. Zion must grow into many stakes. She must increase in beauty and holiness. Her boundaries must be enlarged, and she must arise and put on her beautiful garments. Therefore I give unto you this commandment, that ye bind yourselves by this covenant, and it shall be done according to the laws of the Lord. Behold, here is wisdom also in me for your good. The Lord says the sacred covenant in which he wants them to unite themselves is for their good and this will give them the wisdom by which they can be preserved. And you are to be equal, or in other words, you are to have equal claims on the properties for the benefit of managing the concerns of your stewardships, every man according to his wants and his needs, inasmuch as his wants are just. Now the Lord begins preaching the doctrine set forth originally in section 78, verses 5 and 6. Every family leader is to have a stewardship and be given equal claim upon the resources of the storehouse in order to make his stewardship a success. He is to be supported according to his wants and his needs inasmuch as his wants are just. Only the most mature and righteous saints can live the law of consecration successfully. And all this for the benefit of the church of the living God that every man may improve upon his talent, that every man may gain other talents, yea, even an hundredfold, to be cast into the Lord's storehouse, to become the common property of the whole church. And the genius of this law is so perfect when properly lived that every steward is able to improve his talents and be given additional stewardship assignments until he has increased his surplus contribution to the sacred storehouse a hundredfold over what he was originally given. This is how the law of consecration produces almost unlimited wealth for all the people. Every man seeking the interest of his neighbor and doing all things with an eye single to the glory of God. Each steward gains satisfaction in seeking the welfare of his neighbor and conducting every aspect of his life in order to impart glory and implementation to the power of God. This order I have appointed to be an everlasting order unto you and unto your successors inasmuch as you sin not. The Lord then emphasizes the permanent nature of the law of consecration. It is not an experiment. It is not a project. It is God's eternal and everlasting order, so long as the people can live in righteousness and sin not. And the soul that sins against this covenant and hardeneth his heart against it shall be dealt with according to the laws of my church and shall be delivered over to the buffetings of Satan until the day of redemption. But if they do sin and break the sacred covenants through greed or deceit, the sinner will be cast out of the church and be subject to the buffetings of Satan. There were certain ones who heard this message, 
and who lived to see it fulfilled upon their heads in the not-too-distant future. And now, verily I say unto you, and this is wisdom, Make unto yourselves friends with the mammon of unrighteousness, and they will not destroy you. Now comes a very strange command. The saints are instructed to make friends with the mammon of unrighteousness, lest these people turn against the saints and destroy them. In fact, at that very moment, there were wicked elements of secret combinations already formulating, and their intention was to destroy God's people. Leave judgment alone with me, for it is mine and I will repay. Peace be with you. My blessings continue with you. When God's people are persecuted and abused, they have an inclination to pray that God will devastate and destroy their enemies. However, the Lord has his own plans to avenge himself against the enemies of the saints. They would never guess the catastrophes that will engulf this whole region as the ravages of civil war sweep down upon it. For even yet the kingdom is yours and shall be forever, if you fall not from your steadfastness. Even so, amen. But the main thing to remember is that the people have become the heirs of the kingdom of God, and they shall possess it forever if they just remain faithful and steadfast. Section 83, Introduction After Joseph transacted the most pressing administrative problems at the headquarters of the church in Independence, he traveled about a dozen miles west to the settlement of the Colesville Saints, who were among the first to receive the restored gospel in eastern New York. They had located in Caw Township, which is now a suburb of Kansas City, Missouri. Nobody in the church loved Joseph more than the Colesville Saints. He said they rejoiced over him as the ancient saints did with Paul. Joseph then returned to Independence, and on April the 30th, 1832, he received a powerful revelation. It dealt with the responsibilities of the church and the heads of families concerning the women and children of the kingdom. Now the text of section 83. Verily, thus saith the Lord, in addition to the laws of the church concerning women and children, those who belong to the church who have lost their husbands or fathers. The Lord said the laws of the church concerning widows and orphans needed to be implemented with instructions concerning all women and children. Women have claim on their husbands for their maintenance until their husbands are taken. And if they are not found transgressors, they shall have fellowship in the church. The first principle is that women have claim upon their husbands for their necessities of life as long as the husband is living and the wife has remained faithful in the church. And if they are not faithful, they shall not have fellowship in the church, yet they may remain upon their inheritances according to the laws of the land. The law concerning women who have apostatized or fallen away from the church is that they shall be cut out of the congregation of the saints, but nevertheless be allowed to occupy their inheritance or stewardship according to the laws of the land. It should be remembered that under the law of consecration, the bishops gave a deed to each steward, and that his inheritance was his property in fee simple, even if he left the church. However, he could not claim any of his excess property 
which he had deeded for the poor to the church storehouse. All children have claim upon their parents for their maintenance until they are of age. Under the law of the church, all children have claim upon their parents until they have reached their legal age when they are expected to provide for themselves. However, most parents found there was a weaning period when parents helped their children establish themselves. This was the rule with reference to young men. The rule with reference to young women was to allow them to remain in the family until they married. And after that, they have claim upon the church, or in other words, upon the Lord's storehouse, if their parents have not wherewith to give them inheritances. The Lord says that if the family cannot provide for their children, the children have a right to petition the church for their maintenance. And the storehouse shall be kept by the consecrations of the church, and widows and orphans shall be provided for, as also the poor. Amen. The Lord's storehouse is to be continuously supplied by the saints consecrating their surplus money and produce so that the poor, the widows, and the orphans cannot merely be provided with necessities, but the bishop will have the means to establish many new stewardships to provide more resources. If you liked this podcast and would like more materials by W. Cleon Skousen, you can find his other books and recordings at skousenlibrary.com or at your local LDS bookstore.